Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Many blessings to you, saints Thank you so much for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. And Father, we ask your blessing upon us that we retain some of these things and this understanding of these attacks that are coming against the United States and the world. Thank you so much, Father, for doing this in Jesus' name. Okay, we're going to talk about judgment on the U.S., And uh, the first revelation I'm going to share is a dream of judgment coming. Um, Elena Timoshuk, uh, 8-30-23. I dreamt that I was in uh, the Walmart parking lot with my mom and daughters. We had set up camping chairs in the back and uh, were there to watch a meteor shower and see a sign in the sky. I've heard about this before. Uh, Meteor shower could begin this. While we were waiting, I saw chaos happening all around me, and I knew that everyone was boycotting uh, the grocery stores. Uh, She saw Panera Bread, Starbucks, uh, Save-A-Lot, and anyone who was weak and would enter to get groceries uh, for their family, the people boycotting would attack them. So she was in like this shopping center type center here, and she saw this, okay, including the Walmart. Some were even uh, lighting their cars on fire to scare off anyone else from trying to shop. I thought that I needed to wake up and tell my husband my dream, but then uh, slipped into another one, (laughs) okay. Well, these uh, leftist Terrorists are probably agitated by the deep state because Walmart is being bought out by moral conservatives, as is Amazon and other immoral businesses. Uh, These conservative groups are against the depravity pushed on the public by these chain stores, plus the trafficking uh, being discovered. Uh, I was with my husband in my parents' house, and my girls were asleep in another room. I started sharing my dream with him and noticed a massive storm approaching. I knew we needed to get in a safe room during the storm. Safe room sounds like sealed off. So So I went to get my daughters, and I saw that my oldest had woken up and uh, uh, gone outside and was playing with the cousin. I ran out and got her and told the other little girl to run home because a huge storm is coming, and the wind had already picked up to uh, really strong winds. My little cousin uh, excitedly asked me if we were going to heaven, and I told her, not just yet. Then again, I started thinking that I needed to tell my husband my dream, but that I needed to get a verse by faith at random first and and uh, two places 
from the Bible popped into my mind, Matthew 11:22 and Mark 11 and 13. I had no idea what these verses were, but I knew the Lord put them in my mind, and then I woke up so I could write them down before I'd forget. Well, Matthew 11 and 22, uh, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And Mark 11 and 13, And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And, of course, this uh, fig tree was planted on the top of the Mount of Abominations, which was all the abominations, um, uh, false gods and things on the top of it. So it couldn't bear good fruit, right? I felt that this dream was telling me uh, the Lord's judgment is coming very quickly. Judgments are coming from the deep state that will depopulate many. Um, and now we're going to go to another revelation here. Tsunami judgment coming. Tiana Fire 2.8.23 I dreamt we were with the local brethren and we all lived next to each other in a community. A warning came from God in an audible voice and he said, a tsunami is coming, quote-unquote. Tsunamis are destructive surges of water that can hit land, and this could represent a spiritual tsunami bringing judgment on the wicked. The brethren were all cheering that God had given warning this time, uh, which we are doing right now. Okay, The brethren spoke about uh, the last time, there was a giant tsunami and storm, but God didn't tell them it was coming and that it had wiped out everyone except the UBM brethren. Well, this uh, God gives us warnings of judgment so we can be ready ourselves and warn others so that they can repent from sin and turn to the Lord. And UBM here uh, represents unleavened bread People, people who are partaking of the truth. Okay, First John four seventeen. Herein is love made perfect with us, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, even so are we in this world. So many judgments will wipe out the wicked and take some righteous home by God's mercy. Um, Psalm 91 and 8 says, Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Psalm 37 and 38. As for transgressors, they shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. So, Passovers are coming. Uh, the last time everyone was in the water, and having to tread over all the waves, and all of the brethren were gathered near each other in the water. Well, I believe that the body of Christ needs to stay together and tread above the curse of the waters of the Word, because the curse is pronounced in the Word, um, and uh, to not let factions separate them. Yeah. 
It was so dark, and there were storms and vicious waves, and for three days they had to do this. In other words, tread water. It means stay above the depth of the curse, right? The storms and treading uh, the waves of water represent the trials of our faith in the promises which will save us from the judgments. Amen. Because of their faith and strength in Christ, they were preserved, but all the other people were taken out by the tsunami. Hmm. Okay. And and in Second Timothy um, 4 and 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will save me unto his heavenly kingdom. A good word of promise. Psalm 34 and 17, The righteous cried, and the Lord heard, and delivered them out of all their troubles. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. In Exodus 12 and 13, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And there shall no plague be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Yes, the plagues are coming. I asked some of the sisters how they were able to tread on the water with their three children. Each and uh, a few of uh, the children were able to tread themselves or the children were strapped to their parents with a carrier. Well, parents are to teach their children the Word and how to walk by faith because sometimes they're stronger than the parents. So they know how to go through trials too. They claim those promises. Deuteronomy 11 and 19 says, And you shall teach them your children, talking of them when thou sittest in thy house and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So teach the children how to tread the water, how to stay above the curse, right? Proverbs 22 and 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. That's the parent's job. Some people want to think that the it's the Sunday school's job. No, it's the parent's job. I honestly had much fear of maybe having to tread in dark open water, and I was worried about sharks. But the brethren said, because God has warned us this time, we won't have to do that. (laughs) Well, he warns you for a reason, doesn't he? He warns you so that you can be ready, right? So when we go through our trials in faith and obedience and overcome them, We don't have to go through them again and again, right? Uh, We all grabbed what we needed and walked to the highest point on the biggest hill in the town. I believe it's probably representing our walk to get to Mount Zion and be in Jerusalem, which was a place of safety, right? And, of course, it's also the bride, going to the bride, right? When we got to the top, there was a giant tree that we all climbed and got on top. Well, this tree will show up a little later, too, but this giant tree represents the tree of life. 
the tongue that speaks God's promises. Proverbs 3 and 18 says, She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. Speaking of wisdom, right? And happy is everyone that retaineth her. Amen. And Proverbs 15 and 4 in Hebrew actually says, The healing of the tongue is a tree of life. And Revelation 2 and 7, To him that overcometh, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life. So that tongue of the righteous is the tree of life. When you agree with the word of God, it's powerful. We could see the view over the whole town and the water, and there was a giant storm forming and waves rushing. Uh, this giant storm forming could be the deep state plagues and other planned attacks. Uh, we know that uh, these things are to be released because they want to stop some things that are happening, including their own demise, uh, including giving all their stolen money back to the people and such things as that. We then saw other people from the town running to the hill to try and get up high. Then giant waves started rushing through the town, and everyone not on the hill was washed away. Mm -hmm. Well, many people are unaware and ignorant of the coming storm. Uh, we need to be abiding in Christ now, dwelling in heavenly places which is by faith in his promises. Now, some other people were on the hill and started running to the top. But then another giant wave crashed on the hill and everyone not on the tree was taken out. Okay, the tree, of course, is those confessing the promises of God, right? The storm lasted about five days, but we were all content, praising God from the tree. And again, UBM brethren were the only ones left alive from the town. And this represents only those who believe the true word will escape. Not just our local body, but unleavened bread, right? The truth, the word of God. Okay, this is a prophecy given to Dr. Patricia Green, and it was called Knockout Punch Prophecy. And I'll put your link there so you can go to the original. But today's video is called The Knockout Punch Prophecy, she said, which the Lord gave me on July twenty second, 2023. As I sat down to receive this message, the very first words that I heard was, Knockout Punch. And the Lord said, I am delivering the knockout blow to the worldwide elites who have controlled the politics, the financial world, the pharmaceutical industry, and yes, I say industry because that is what it is. By no means does Big Pharma have the interest of making people well or healing them. Just the opposite. They create drugs to make people dependent on them so that they can line their pockets with trillions of dollars. 
And the Lord said, I have put my glove on, and with one blow I will remove the global elites who hide in the shadows and control the people, says the Lord. The Lord said, I will say, enough. I have had enough of their wickedness. I have had enough of their deceit and control and manipulation. I have had enough of them controlling the wealth. For with my knockout punch, I will strip them of their wealth, which is built on a false system and layers of lies. And Patricia said this. She said, uh, now I find this part quite amusing. The Lord said, the wealthy elites will be like the emperor who wore no clothes in this children's storybook called Emperor's New Clothes. It was a shyster who convinced the emperor that he was weaving him a beautiful robe, but in fact there was no robe, and it was imaginary. He further convinced the emperor to parade through the city in his glorious robe that did not exist. Well, uh, this could represent a lot of things. Uh, the fake Biden presidency, uh, who, of course, is just a puppet, along with all the uh, political parties who are uh, an imaginary show, and they will all be exposed and declassed, I believe. Anyway, this is the same fate as the global elite, says the Lord. It was the common people who revealed to the emperor that he was naked and without any royal apparel. It will be the common people who will strip the elites of their fine apparel, their riches, and their properties. And the elites will be naked and exposed, says the Lord of hosts. It's happening. It's happening. The prayers of the righteous to bring down the deep state globalist Satanist bunch should be in full effect here. We continue to send the angels to drain the swamp. Amen. Ephesians 5.11 And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather even reprove them. And uh, John 3 and 20 for every one that doeth evil hateth the light and cometh not to the light, lest his works should be reproved. Again, the Lord says, How do you say, can this happen? Because they are so powerful and so rich and so hidden. But the Lord says, But I say, nothing is impossible with me, says the Lord of hosts. How could the entire army of Pharaoh and Pharaoh himself be swallowed up in the Red Sea? And yet, I did that, says the Lord. No one in Israel could have imagined that their enemies against them could be here one minute and the next minute forever gone, forever annihilated. Well, nobody could have imagined that with one word, the Satanists who followed Kevin would all be destroyed in a moment. Mm-hmm. And he went on to say, I am that same God. I created the earth and everything in it. It all belongs to me, says the Lord. The heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. Who is man? 
that I am mindful of him, says the Lord. I say, man is my creation, and I will not tolerate the altering of men, women, and children. For that is the work of the enemies, to try and improve and alter and change my creation. No one knows my mind or my power except my son. So if you want a glimpse into my thoughts and a glimpse of my power, come to my son and ask him to reveal me, to reveal me, your heavenly father. For I am almighty and all-powerful, all-knowing and ever-present. I am the great I am, and I am has spoken. Now go, my children, and declare my words in this earthly realm. Declare all that I have spoken and already given to my true prophets. For when you declare my words, you are taking your spiritual authority on this. Uh, Luke 10 and 19 says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. And the Lord said, Use your voice, my children. Lift up your voice in one accord, for your voice has power, my power, says the Lord. Yes, speak the word of the Lord. Speak in agreement with the word of the Lord against the powers of darkness and against their ability to destroy you. <clears throat> and I'm going to uh, repeat this. Uh, we call It was called, by the way, Let Me Show You Something, and it was given to Dana Coverstone, uh, 5-19-23, and it pretty much agrees with what we just shared and also what we're going to share. So I'd like to put things together like that. And this revelation seems to be the backlash of the deep state against the supporters of the alliance and uh, the American people in general. Yes, there will be backlash. Uh, the preface is, uh, Dana said that this dream lasted from April the 17th to May the 16th, almost a month. Almost 30 days. It's been one of the longest dreams he's had. The dream began with me sitting in the top of a very tall tree. There it is again. Looking down on fog and mist that hung over the entire nation. Well, again, the tree is the tongue that speaks deliverance from the curses as in the revelations we just shared. It was covering over Canada and Mexico as well. It did not cover the water, just the nation, only the land. Hmm, well, that's not true of anything physical, right? It appears as a fog, but is uh, man-made and controlled. Prevailing winds would remove it. Hmm. I can see the physical land covered in fog. It covered Canada and Mexico as well, but it looked like the fog was churning. It was moving. It was staying in place over the United States of America. So it's man-made and controlled. But not over Mexico or Canada. It reminded me of a locust swarm that you can see, like in a National Geographic photo. 
Well, the locusts in Joel chapter 2 were the Assyrian army that was able to take down apostate northern ten tribes of Israel, but not the bride, Jerusalem. They were taken down when they tried that. So that the bride is the place of safety. Jerusalem represents the bride, and it is a place of safety. It was just moving effortlessly, but it was also frothing. It was like the steam coming off of a hot coffee or a hot cocoa or a hot tea. Uh, but what it covered was thick, and you could and you could not see anything below what you were seeing from the top of the fog. Well, we know that true fog skips dry areas and manifests over damp, watery places. So this is different. (laughs) And as I was pondering the moving of the fog uh, is when the man appeared to me, And I believe the man is Jesus or represents the Holy Spirit at times. But he came out and he simply said, let me show you something. And he grabbed my hand and we stepped out into the air because I was in a tall tree looking down. And I was kind of hanging, you know, like holding on to a limb with my feet just uh, looking at it. I'm uh, thankful that God sees all the things that we're going on, that are going on, and He knows what's coming. He knows what's happening. And I just had that sense that I was watching, uh, that I was about to be instructed or told some things. We descended down through the fog. We were not flying. It was like we were walking. Fog seemed to be very evil and very intentional. Uh, it appeared to try to reach out and grab me with these eerie ethereal arms. Well, of course, it's a menace to man and will kill many. It was also like the fog was alive. Well, it very well could be alive. You know, I mean, uh, the stuff they've been spraying on everybody, it is alive. And it's allowed to spread disease. It was dark. It was evil. But it was trying to grab hold. The man led me on until he reached the ground. And then he said, look up. And when he said that, I realized that the fog was gone. But I could see jets that were flying in all directions. And it appeared to be Uh, almost 7 or 7.30 at night. It was dusk. Well, how often have we seen their chemtrails in the evening or very, very early in the morning, you know? Anyway, the, the lights were going off as people were getting ready for bed. Darkness was hitting. It was all almost like I could see traffic had stopped and people were home going to bed uh, to get ready for work the next day. In other words, they will be poisoned while they slept, right? So I'm watching all these jets that are going back and forth, north and south, east and west, flying in all directions. It was obviously dusk and the lights were going out. 
and that's when I realized that I heard this loud hissing, and uh, every single jet was spraying something out of the exhaust. Now, we would call these things chemtrails, he says. Uh, and he went on, the, and the jets flying north would be going north for a while, then suddenly turn around and come back and spray the same way. Uh, the ones going east would go east for a couple of miles and then come back, and it was like regional. It was like this in every state. They kept blanketing the country in whatever they were spraying. The time passed, and the jets disappeared. Okay, well, in A.A. A. Allen's vision, he saw the same thing. And then people started dropping dead everywhere in the United States, except the saints were in a high mountain praising the Lord in a place of safety. It was actually a cleft in the, the rock. <laughs> we know the rock is Jesus, right? Then I saw people getting up and going to work. So all of this stuff was being done at night when no one was aware, almost as if there was some elite in corporate plan to poison the nation. Well, it's obviously a satanic depopulation cult trying to stop the transfer of their stolen wealth and their own demise, as I said before. Once again, the fog was over Mexico and Canada, but it was not moving anywhere except the United States of America. It was churning here, you know. People are getting up uh, for school, getting on the buses and going to school, and then the next thing that I see happening is this. I was standing in Times Square watching those Jumbotron television screens with a breaking news item of a major outbreak of a new virus. Now, the timeline that I could tell in the dream is late summer, early fall, as the news broadcasts were talking about this. The World Health Organization was laying out guidelines that must be followed regardless of constitutions or national law. And this is, of course, to kill the population and make money for the deep state pharmaceutical companies. Those um, are the two words they used, regardless of constitutions or national law. Hmm. There were military tanks and Hummers that started patrolling as announcements were being made, and I said to the man that the jets appeared to be the source of the medical issue. Yep, true. So, here we go again. Uh, coming pandemic, Isaac Payne, 9-6-23. In this dream, I was walking in a suburb during the daytime. The houses in the suburb were single-level ranches. Upon research, I found that ranch-style homes became popular after World War II due to young soldiers looking for affordable housing for their families. 
and this style was fast and easy for developers. I believe that this uh, neighborhood symbolizes uh, that the communities of today's civilians believe we are post-war. Hence the developed ranch-style homes. However, I believe we are still pre-war. I do, too, the biggest part of it. Right. Well, yes, they are already celebrating the end of this war. But Revelation 6 clearly shows that the man-child is coming just before a real worldwide war. Yes. And although during the construction of these homes in the 1950s and 60s of Vietnam war happened, this correlates with the dream I had before this dream on the same night, 9-6-23. Could it be that the Afghanistan withdrawal of American troops was to allocate the U.S.'s manpower to another cause or war, whether internally or externally? To briefly summarize the second dream and to show how it correlates with this dream, I'll elaborate. In this brief dream, there was a military pilot The whole dream had a 1980s movie vibe to it. In this dream, I thought I was watching a 1980s film. The person playing the pilot was Tom Cruise. The name Tom means twin. Also, Cruise is a play on words. I think this represents that pilots in the air seem to be just cruising in the skies. However, it is anything but that. Plus, the name Tom is such an American name. Many celebrities and famous Americans have uh, the name Tom. And these people seem like everyday citizens. And uh, the name Tom is a name that's easy to pronounce and for Americans to identify with. However, the name Tom is not the same as Thomas. Maybe they derived from the same place and uh, seem as twin. Thomas Wright was a twin. And in name, but there is only Christ and Antichrist. And I think we know Christ lived in Thomas. Thinking further on twin, I think of Jacob and Esau, born at the same time, but yet two totally different vessels. Romans nine twenty one through 24 Or hath not the potter a right over the clay from the same lump to make one part a vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath fitted unto destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he also called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. Then Isaac said, I believe uh, Tom Cruise represents the government and vessels of destruction. So back to the dream. Tom Cruise was dating a woman, and they had a child. 
the child rebelled against his dad in the dream and went to Vietnam. There you go. To go to war. Well, dating a woman and not married equals being out of covenant with God and not yoked to the bride. Child out of wedlock represents fruit that is shameful, fruit that is unlawful, hence bad. Rebellious to dad represents uh, exactly that, rebels against God. And as Tom Cruise was in Vietnam, he ended up being captured by the Vietnamese. It's also worth noting that the pilots that went to Vietnam performed low-level chemtrail, hence Agent Orange. This is actually an old war tactic. It was told to the people in America and in Vietnam that Agent Orange was only a herbicide and only affected the vegetation and was to help visibility for Americans fighting in the dense jungle. This all correlates to this first dream where I was in the suburbs with ranch-style homes. Back to the original dream. I was standing in the suburb with ranch-style homes, and I noticed with me were two individuals. Naturally, one of the people is a friend of mine, and the other is just an acquaintance. Well, well we've seen the two individuals all the way down through here, but uh, they are named Justin, my friend, and the other is named Jimmy, an acquaintance. The name Justin means just, upright, or righteous, and the name Jimmy means supplanter. <laughs> okay, we were all walking in this uh neighborhood together during the daytime. I looked up and noticed the whole entire sky was covered in chemtrails. It was a blanket of chemtrails, and the chemtrails produced a fog that was quickly descending, and yet the gases of the chemtrail were dense, even upon descending to the ground. <clears throat> I saw the sky being blanketed with chemtrails. I saw many airplanes dusting the sky, blocking out any part of it uh, that was blue. This wasn't a squadron of airplanes. This was a fleet. Also, I saw that some airplanes were making tight circular patterns while descending to the earth which created like a tornado effect of chemtrails. I could feel my heart grow heavy because I knew that this was an all-out war on America. However, I also knew that it was our own country and politicians that were responsible for this eradication of the American civilians. I was also able to perceive that this man-made plague was unlike anything the world had experienced and that this plague was a death sentence as the casualty rate would be incredibly high. So this was like A.A. A. Allen's dream of chemtrails that dropped people dead in their tracks and all over the United States except for the righteous who were praising God on the mountain, which we think represents Mount Zion. 
Praise the Lord. Praising God is powerful. <clears throat> Psalm 149 is clear on that. Praising God destroys your enemies and binds them, including plagues. As I took my eyes off the chemtrails and looked ahead of me, I saw an older man standing in the road in the direction that we were headed. His back was turned to us. The older man had white hair and was wearing a white jacket and a blue hat. As I got closer to this older man, I realized that this was Joe Biden, or so I thought. He was standing near an ice cream vendor awaiting his ice cream. I tried to step to the side to get a better look at him uh, to verify, but he stepped in the opposite direction so I could not look up close at his face. Well, yeah, they don't want you to inspect his face and realize he doesn't quite look like Joe Biden. <laughs> I was able to see on his jacket was an American flag, yes, a pendant pinned to his white blazer jacket. I I took another side step and I looked at his face again, and he once again attempted to evade me, but I noticed this wasn't really Joe Biden, but a lookalike. This person was only used uh, for a symbol of American hierarchy and to portray active institutionalism in America. I knew that this person was a shell and uh, the epitome of a Manchurian candidate. This lookalike evaded me and he walked away towards the opposite direction that we were going. I believe the white jacket and blue hat are false indicators portraying an outward pure and heavenly appearance of righteous acts, but are quite the opposite. Since, of course, he is an actor, he avoids close-ups, right? Psalm 55, uh, 19-23, God will hear and answer them, even he that abideth from old. The men who have no changes, who fear not God. He has put forth his hand against such as were at peace with him. He hath profaned his covenant. His mouth was smooth as butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain thee. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. But thou, O God, wilt bring them down into the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in thee. I knew that whoever was controlling this person was also responsible for the chemtrails and the unleashing of the plague upon America. Some may argue with that. But it does seem like he's kind of in the middle. <laughs> As the chemtrails were quickly and densely descending, Justin, Jimmy, and I began to run through the neighborhood looking for shelter. As we were running, I noticed that my mamma, Pat, was outside trying to get my attention. Patsy means nobleman or aristocrat. Aristocrat means a family of high social rank or stature. 
and I believe she resembles many American families in how they think. Compared to the rest of the world, a family in America is of high stature uh, in the grand scheme of wealth and provision. She ran outside her house and asked me what was going on. I told her to look up and explained that this is an internal coup upon Americans. She began to look up and then looked back at me. I could tell she was ignorant and simple-minded towards the uh, atrocities that have been and were being committed. Also, I was able to discern that she didn't take much thought of what I said and didn't really believe me. She wasn't rude or high-minded about it. She honestly couldn't grasp what I was saying. And it seemed in her mind that life was hunky-dory, as usual. She did, however, go back inside her house. So, Justin, Jimmy, and I continued running down the road looking for safety. We ran to a house in the neighborhood I'm not sure if we went inside or not. However, the the three of us were discussing what to do next and how to evade this deadly plague that was now coming in contact with the neighborhood. One of the men with me opened up a case and inside was a guitar. Well, since this was the cure for this problem, uh, this was probably the righteous one. Justin. Okay. I picked up the guitar and held it in my hands, and immediately when I held the guitar, I knew exactly what to do. I told Justin and Jimmy that we needed to go back to my house and stay inside. This meant that we shouldn't be running down the road any longer to get away from the deadly plague that now covered the streets and the neighborhood. We should instead run directly into it, because that was where my house was. Well, uh, each, each abiding in one's own house is what was commanded for the Passover. <laughs> so that this is more important than running from what you see, is to run under the blood and be under the Passover, right? I believe the guitar symbolizes worship as it is in an instrument it is an instrument of worship and I believe worship is more than just praise with music I believe it's our thoughts our prayers way and walk of life uh, memories of father's miracles in our own lives thankfulness love and giving etc all our forms of worship well worship in the greek Proskineo means to kiss towards, meaning it's an act of love towards God. Yes, loving and praising God. I believe what Father showed me in this dream is that the guitar represents that we should continually praise Father in all that we do, and He will protect, provide, and deliver us in all things. And then I woke up. And he gave Psalm 149 and 6, and I continued it. 
Psalm 149.6 Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand, which is clearly the way to conquer an enemy and all of his methods. Verse 7 goes on to say, To execute vengeance upon the nations and punishments upon the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. So while looking for this verse, I felt in my heart to check out Psalm 150. And this is the the last chapter of Psalms. I did not know what it said, but the thought came to my mind that King David was a great warrior, one of the fiercest warriors in the history of all mankind. So it would be important to see what the last thing that King David had to say. Just think of it this way. For example, if a loved one had ever said his last words to an individual, those last words or statements now would have such an impact on the receiving individual for all their lives. Those last words could well uh, become the receiving individual's lifelong mantra. The departing uh, loved ones many times save their most important statements for this last moment. So the last statement of Psalms is this. <laughs> Psalm 150. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the psaltery and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. And again, this is God's method uh, for us to conquer our enemies. And of course, any weapons that they have either. If Samson's strength, he goes on to say, was his submission to his hair, in his hair, then David's strength could be his submission in his praise. When the plagues came down uh, from the sky, just point at them and say, Praise him, the firmament of his power. In the firmament of his power. Amen. All right. We're going to call this Python Crushed. And this is Marie Kelton, 9223. During the meeting, I had an open vision of an ancient Roman temple. I saw the inside of the temple, that it had what looked like a pool in it. I saw a python go up and around one of the pillars that was in the temple on the right side. The python was going around the edge of the temple. We are in the time of the end time ten toes of iron and clay, the Roman Empire, and their worship of a, a, another Jesus, and even their religions are another Jesus. The python is the old serpent of Satan in their body.
Then an earthquake happened, and the temple started collapsing. The python and the stones fell into the pool below. The python was crushed by the stones that fell into the pool. Well, the iron and clay, the ten toes of the end-time vision of Daniel, was the revived Roman Empire, the stone cut out of the mountain of God's kingdom, rolled down and crushed it. And that is, of course, our deep state Babylon falling now and in the tribulation. The dragon is the old serpent in the sea of God's people. Their pride and persecution of the saints will destroy them. Leviathan the serpent is the king of pride. And you remember the soothsaying maid who uh, had a, a serpent, a python, and um, she was trying to contribute towards the apostles' words, but she was a hindrance, and he got rid of her. Okay, I'm going to give you this link, too. It's a Before It's News link. Uh, it's by Dr. Jane Ruby, and it speaks of Marburg fever already declared. Uh, 18 gigahertz, which is 18 is 666, activates the jabbed, and then he she introduces this attorney, Todd Callender, to explain all this, and it's pretty good, too. And so it's already out there. Most people have heard of this before. Marburg's already out there. It's in the jabbed people. And it's released by this frequency, 18 gigahertz, uh, which can be, of course, uh, aimed at you through the cell towers, 5G. And um, anyway... This is very interesting. It shows us that um, these people who took the jab are the most dangerous out there because not only can they give you the diseases that are in that, but also the, in, the diseases that are locked up in them waiting to be released. So pretty much they would hit the population all at the same time. Yes. It's very interesting, all the dangerous things out there. But we have to remember that uh, the Lord already paid the price for this. There will be no plague upon you to destroy you, the Lord declared. And that was because of the the lamb that was slain. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that our uh, Passover has already been given which is Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain. If you believe He took away your sins and took away your curse, because that's involved in it too, if you believe that, you can walk free of this thing. If you uh, believe He took away your sins and you're actively against them, called repentance, uh, and you confess the word of the Lord that by whose stripes you were healed, um, then you can be delivered, right? And none of the diseases uh, will he put upon thee which he has put upon the Egyptians, because he is the Lord that healeth thee.
And Psalm 103 tells us too, He who forgives all of our iniquities and heals all of our diseases. Do you believe it? It happened at the cross. It's not that you got to pray for this and believe for it to come. It's already come. It's done. Jesus said, All things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe you received them. It's past tense. And you shall have them. And speak to the mountain. And don't doubt in your heart that what you say will come to pass, and you will have it. He said that in Mark 11 and 23. So you can speak to things. You can speak to things and nullify their effect upon your life. You have authority to do this. I give you authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall in any wise hurt you. Yeah, even serpents and scorpions mentioned in that text, right? So, the Lord has already paid for this. Unbelievers are in trouble, uh, except unless, of course, there are people in your family uh, because a lamb was given for a household. A household. Uh, So, you can believe for your family. You can trust God. You can pray for them and believe. Jesus said, all All things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe you received them and you shall have them. So pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray for those that you are believing to come to the Lord before they die. Okay? Do it. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for this. And uh, we love you and we bless you in Jesus' name. We may carry on. Maybe a part two to this because we're sure getting a lot of revelations. All right. And also, uh, Michael Hare is going to come and share a word with you. And uh, Lord, bless Michael and bless all the brethren that join with him to listen to this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. It's good to be back with you again. Let's ask the Father to bless us. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, We thank you for your word that shows us how to walk this walk that you want us to be on. It shows us how to pray, how to love, and how faith uh, helps us in our walk. And uh, Lord, we thank you for getting, helping us get this message out and the anointing to let it be a blessing to folks and to teach us uh, what prayer is and what faith and love associated with each other is. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for blessing us today, Lord. Let it be a blessing to the people out there. Okay, well, that's uh, basically what I want to talk about today is fellowship with the Lord and uh, faith love. You know, uh, to start out, prayer is, of course, joining forces with the Father. It is a fellowship with him, carrying out his will upon the earth and it seems that God is limited by our prayer life that he can't do anything nothing he can't do he can do nothing for humanity unless somebody asks him to do it well why is that I don't know but we get a hint of it in Genesis 18 when God refused to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah 
until he had talked it over with his blood covenant friend, Abraham. And Abraham's prayer, which is uh, written in Genesis 18, verses 22 and 23, is the most illuminating and suggestive of any prayer in the Old Covenant. He said to God in Genesis 18, 23 to 25, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou consume the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou consume and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. That so the righteous should be as the wicked that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, here, Abraham was taking his place in the covenant. Abraham had, through the covenant, received rights and privileges that we don't have a whole lot of understanding about. The covenant that Abraham had just formalized with the Lord gave him a legal standing with God. And we hear him speak real plain when he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And that's his intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah. All through the old covenant, we find men who understood and took their place in the covenant. We've got Joshua. He parted the Jordan. He commanded the sun, the moon, and the stars to stand still in the heavens. Then we have Elijah. He brought fire out of heaven to consume the offering as well as the altar. Then we have King David's mighty men were shielded from death in all their wars. They became supermen as long as they remembered the covenant. Practically all the prayers of the Old Testament were prayers of covenant men. They had to be answered. God had to give heed to their petitions. Now, prayer under the new covenant. The New Testament, of course, is the new covenant. The believer has covenant rights in prayer. Isaiah 43, 25 and 26 says, I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Set thou forth thy cause that thou mayest be justified. Well, here's a challenge of the covenant keeping God to Israel. And it's a challenge to the church today, too. He says, put me in remembrance. In other words, remind him of his promises when you pray. Men who have been mighty in prayer have always reminded God of his promises and laid their case legally before him. And when you pray, stand before the throne and plead your case just like a lawyer. That lawyer is continually bringing law and precedent. So we bring his word, his covenant promises, and we plead our rights. He said, put me in remembrance. Set forth thy cause that thou mayest be justified. So we need to challenge God with his word when you lay your prayers before him. 
If your children are unsaved, find those scriptures that cover your case and lay the matter right before him, just like a lawyer. Isaiah 45 and 11 says, Ask me of the things that are to come concerning my sons or concerning the work of my hand. Then he says, Command ye me. Folks, this is a prophetic word and it belongs to us. Therefore, we can use it. Ask me of the things that are to come. These were future things, things perhaps connected with, connected with your life and your family, your community, or the government. Concerning the works of my hands, command ye me. Now that's in uh, perfect harmony with John chapter 15 and verse 7. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatsoever you will, and it shall be done unto you. That word ask means call for or command. And you don't command in tones of arrogance, but as a partner. You lay the case before him. You call his attention to his part in this drama of life. And a scripture you ought to use continually is Isaiah 55 and 11. Now read carefully the ninth and the tenth verse. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth and brings it forth, and bud, and gives seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now that's the very backbone, should be, of our prayer life. No word that has gone forth from God can return unto him void, it says. And then Jeremiah 1 and verse 12 says, I'll watch over my word to perform it. God's going to make good his word if you stand by it. Isaiah 62, 6 says, Ye that are the Lord's remembrancers, take ye no rest, and give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now here he suggests there are men and women who are remembrances, whose business it is to hold these promises and these statements of fact clearly before the Lord's mind. Isaiah 64 and 7 said, There is none that calls upon thy name, that stirs up himself to take hold of thee. For thou have hid thy face from us, and he has consumed us by means of our iniquities. Daniel stirred himself up to pray. He gave himself to prayer, and he called God's attention to the promises he had made through Jeremiah. There would be a restoration of Israel, and they should go back again to the promised land. Their captivity in Babylon should end, he said. Now, if you will, go back and read Daniel 9, and you'll see that Satan tries to oppose prayer and stand in the way of it. And you'll read the story 
of the battle of the angels and demons over Daniel. And that's recorded over in Daniel 10 and verse 20. But let's go to Jeremiah 33 and 3. Now he says, Call unto me and I will answer thee and will show thee great things and difficult which thou knowest not. God is challenging our cooperation with him in the prayer life. He wants to bless us. Psalm 78 and 41, and they turned again and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. We've done that. We've limited him with our prayer life. We have let the great promises of fellowship and cooperation with God go by as untouched and unrealized. Jesus was not only a teacher of prayer, but he was a prayer. You know, I wish there had been a record given to us of the things for which he prayed and the method of his prayer. We know that he left a bunch of people out there again time after time to spend sometimes a whole night with the Father in prayer. Now, whether that was purely a fellowship or whether he was praying for a lost world, don't know. But he did it. Now, United Prayer. This gives us a picture of United Prayer in Matthew 18 and 18 through 20. Verily I say unto you, what things soever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what things soever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You know, this scripture is amazing. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. That would be an executive meeting with the master. We come together to do business, sitting in his presence, planning, discussing, and then praying. For he said, if two of you shall agree, so the group can be real small, just a husband and a wife, supposedly. But if they agree as touching anything, they shall ask, it shall be done. And that's a challenge. Every believer should find somebody who could join with him in prayer. And we should lay out a program of prayer, making a list of subjects and of people to lay intelligently before the Father. Now let's go to John 15, verses 7 and 8. It says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So if we're born again, we abide in him. His word abides in us in the measure that it governs our lives, in the measure that we act upon it. The problem of faith does not enter prayer, and it's supposed that those who abide in him have faith. It took faith to get into the family. We're in the family now, and it's not a problem of faith. It's a problem of the word abiding in us. And if we are living the word, then when we come to pray, that word dwells in us so richly 
it will become his word on our lips. It will be as the father's words on the martyr's lips. Now, how to pray. John 15 and 16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Well, you see here, prayer is addressed to the Father in Jesus' name, and that's divine order. This statement has wrapped up within it the ability to bring God into our circumstances, into our finances, or whatever the need may be in our homes, in our business, or in our nation. He said, whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. We're not praying to Jesus. We're praying to the Father in the name of Jesus. Jesus really gives us the power of attorney. And what that means is that what Jesus can do, we can do. That means that Jesus' name gives us the right to go into his presence and see our prayers answered. Jesus backs up our prayer. He makes it good. John 16, 23 and 24 says, And in that day you shall ask me no question. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if you shall ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your jar may be made full. We are to pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Now, we can fellowship and talk things over with Jesus, but when it comes to prayer based on legal ground, then it's directed to the Father in Jesus' name. Ain't nothing impossible right here. We will not ask anything of the Father that is out of his will if we're walking with him. The word faith does not occur in this connection. We had faith to come into the family. Now everything that Jesus did belongs to us. We're taking advantage of it. We're acting the part of a child of God. First John five fourteen and 15 says, And this is the boldness which we have toward him, that if we ask anything, According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions which we have asked of him. The believer walking in fellowship with the word will never ask for anything outside of the Father's will. We don't need to worry about that. We know that saving the lost is in his will. For to that end, Jesus died, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. We know that healing the sick, that's in God's will. Christ bore our infirmities and carried our pains. First Peter two twenty four, who his own self bare our sins in his body upon the tree, that we, having died unto sins, might live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. We know praying for finances to meet obligations. That's his will. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. And my God shall supply every need of yours. Practically everything is covered in these points. 
We can pray for the ministers that they will speak in the power of the Spirit. We can pray for the lost in heathen lands. All this is in God's will. And with boldness, we should come to him. Matthew 19, 26 says, But with God all things are possible. We're coming to him who has all ability. Speaking to the Jews, he said over in Matthew 21, verse 22, And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I say unto you, all things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe that you received them and you shall have them. Now here's faith already thanking him for a thing that he already possesses, which has not yet materialized, but he knows that it's his. Mark 9, 23, all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to the man who cooperates with the Lord, who fellowships with the Lord, and who is a co-laborer with the Lord. You know, Christians were called believers in the early church. When Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes, the Greek word used there for believes means a believing one. He said, these signs shall accompany them that believe. And that word also means a believing one. The believer really means a possessor. One who has accepted Christ, received eternal life, and has taken his place in the family of God. And the professing Christian who is only a mental assenter lacks the reality of eternal life in his spirit. He hopes and yearns for it, dreams that someday he's going to have it, but the believer joyfully thanks the Father for it. The word believe is a verb. The word faith is a noun. Everywhere Jesus uses the word believe, he means possession. John six forty seven. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes has eternal life. So believing is equivalent to possession. The same thing is true today. You know, here are some things not to believe. We ought never to believe in failure. We should never think or talk failure because why? We are believers. And the believer in the mind of the Father is a success. He is God's own child. We should never talk about lack or inability to do things. We should never mention weakness. And we remember that God is the strength of our lives and that we have received God's ability. Jesus said to the disciples that they were to tarry in Jerusalem until they received power from on high. Now that Greek word translated power means ability. Then they were to tarry in Jerusalem until they received the ability of God. Now most people have never realized this because they've never heard it explained. And it ought to grab a heart in such a way that we say it out loud, God is my ability. We have ability to do anything that Jesus would have done. We have the ability to love the unlovely and the hateful 
just as Jesus loved them. Christ died for the ungodly and the unworthy. And we have the ability to live for these unworthy ones and these ungodly ones. We have the ability to know the word because God is our ability. He is the author of the word. And we ought not to ever talk hatred because hatred is the badge of the adversary. We should never allow ourselves to even think of it. We should never for a moment permit ourselves to admit that wrong can win or that sin can conquer. We are God's representatives. We're taking Jesus's place, doing Jesus's work. And we have his name with all authority. We have him as our wisdom. We have him as our ability. And if we would only know and comprehend that we are God's sons and daughters, and if we could understand how he looks upon us, how he thinks of us, we would never again talk weakness and failure and lack. Folks, we are in God's class of beings. We are partakers of his nature. And we're taking the place of Jesus in his absence. And we are doing the kind of work that Jesus did. John 14 and 12, and mark this one and underline it and highlight it. He said, greater things than these shall ye do, because I go unto the Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We step out of that old realm of the sense realm or the flesh realm where weakness and failure dominated into this new realm of success and victory in the Lord. And we know that that righteousness gives us access to the throne room of God. And we have as much right to go into the throne room as Jesus did. And that puts prayer on a new basis. We're not pleading. We're not crying. We're not begging. But we're going in as sons and daughters, assuming our responsibilities and laying the needs of the world before him. Prayer becomes like an executive meeting. We have come in to get a requisition to meet that special need of ours. Now let's talk a little bit about receiving and not giving. You know, we've given a wrong message to the world. Our message to the world has been one of giving and putting away. We have told them what they must do, while the truth is that God doesn't ask the world to give up anything. It's not subtraction, folks. It's addition. It's not taking from, it's adding to. God is the giver. We are the receivers. John 3.16 again. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He never asked humanity to give anything. He saw our poverty. He saw that the only things we could give would be things for which he had no use. God is the giver. He gives only as a prince, a king, can give. He doesn't ask us to give up anything or to give away anything, but he does ask us to receive something. And the first 
The very first thing he offers is redemption from the fear of want, failure, weakness, or sickness, or disease. He gives us a redemption from all of these. Now, I know that don't seem possible that it could be, but it's true. He offers us a redemption from the works of the enemy. And as we contemplate this, and it becomes reality in us, we ought to get up and shout our praises to the Lord, glory to God. Now, here's another uh, a truth in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14. Who delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Let's look, take a look at this real careful. He doesn't ask us for anything. He has come of His own accord, at His own expense, and redeemed us out of the authority of darkness, weakness, ignorance, and failure, and he sends the revelation to us, the good news, that we are already redeemed. Not that we may be delivered. Not if we'll be good and give up our sins. No, we are already delivered out of the authority of darkness. And in that word, darkness is the entire system of bondage of satanic hatred, bitterness, and jealousy. Everything that Satan is is in that word darkness. And there's ignorance. There are tears. There's hunger. There's want. There's lack. There's sickness, pain, and agony. Folks, we are delivered out of all of it. He delivered us out of the authority of Satan's dominion. He has not only delivered us, but he has translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have our redemption, the remission of our trespasses. And that ought to jump us up into the new heights of praise, glory to God. Nowhere does he tell us to go out and club the sinner and tell him what he has to give up, tell him what he must surrender. If he takes Christ as a Savior, that's his repentance. If he confesses him as his own Lord with his heart, that's his believing. He not only asks us to receive this marvelous redemption, but he asks us to receive Jesus as Lord. And that's kind of like Ruth the Moabite. Remember that story? She received Boaz as her husband. You know what happened? The receiving of Boaz as her husband meant the end of her poverty, the end of her want, the end of her anxiety and fear, the end of hunger and suffering. She became the mistress of that mansion on the hill. Those great olive orchards and the pomegranates and the peaches and the oranges and those great fields of wheat became her own. She didn't give up her poverty. What she did do, she received his wealth. She didn't give up her loneliness. She received his fellowship. She didn't give up her weakness and anxiety and fear. She received Boaz's plenty, his protection, and his care. God comes to us. He asks us to receive Jesus as our Lord and joyfully tell the world that we have reached the end of our weaknesses and our failures. That we have found God's strength, God's fullness, and God's ability. Glory to God.
Uh, the word Lord has the significance of the bread provider. He is our bread provider. He is our strength provider. He is our ability provider. John 1, 16 says, For of his fullness have we all received, and grace upon grace. We're receivers. We're no longer beggars crying that he come with blessing. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. We are rich in his riches. We are full with his fullness. And we're satisfied with him. He's our risen Lord, our own. He asks us to receive eternal life, his nature. And that makes us a new creation because we are created in Christ Jesus, glory to God. And those old things of failure and weakness and sin are passed away and behold, all things have become new, the word said. And all these things are of God who has reconciled us unto himself. We didn't reconcile ourselves. We didn't have nothing to do with that reconciliation. We had nothing to do with the new creation except to receive it. It's all of God. God did it. It's hard for us to grasp it. Sometimes it's beyond us. It is in the realm of the spirit. The realm of the riches of grace and glory. And this new creation of ours makes us children of God Almighty. God is now our Father. We are His children. We're in His family. And how it ought to comfort and strengthen us with the wonder, grace, and joy of it all. And as we receive His redemption, we are free from the old bondage and habits. And as we receive His Lordship and joyfully tell it to the world, we receive our redemption. Eternal life links us up with Him. We didn't even ask him for it. We didn't plead, pray, beg, promise that we'd do certain things if he gave it to us. All we had to do was to acknowledge the gift and thank him for it. Somebody out there might be saying, well, what about our sin? He put away our sins by the sacrifice of himself. We didn't have nothing to do with it. We had been helplessly in bondage for years and years. And then one day, somebody came along and said, did you know he put your sin away by the sacrifice of himself? And we said, yeah, we read about it, but we didn't understand it. The thing that bound us to the enemy and the thing that brought condemnation had been put away. Our hearts are filled with joy. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, Lord of God. He was made sin with our sin that we might become righteous with his righteousness. And sin no longer has any dominion over us. It says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Father laid upon cross Christ all that we had ever been or done. John the Baptist said this in John one twenty nine: Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Glory to God. So God has dealt with the sin problem. He doesn't ask us to deal with it. He does not ask us to do one thing with it. He does not even ask us to be sorry that we were sinners. Why? We weren't to blame for being in sin. Is a man to blame for being born in a certain country? No, he didn't have nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with our sin condition. 
We cannot even help committing the sins we committed. They were an outgrowth of a condition of sin in our nature to begin with. And now he comes and tells us that he put that sin away, that he canceled all the sins that we ever committed. And he ain't asking us to do anything but walk in his word. He said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10, For by grace have you been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, that no man should glory, for we are his workmanship, and created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. Well, when was the new creation a fact in the mind of the Father? That's when Jesus rose from the dead. Well, when were we justified and declared righteous? When he rose from the dead, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Then this new creation and justification and righteousness has been waiting for us all these years. Well, that's a fact. He doesn't ask us to do anything but just receive it. If you have to pay for our redemption, it's no longer of grace, but of works. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9 said, For by grace have ye been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no man should glory. So sonship with the Lord is a gift. Redemption is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. This new creation is a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift. Jesus was a gift. God so loved that he gave his son. Jesus is a gift. He's the father's gift. We don't pay for a gift. Now let's talk a little bit about the law of love. The law that governs the church. The law that displaced the Ten Commandments. And the law that overrules all human law is the law of love. And if one walks in the Jesus kind of love, he'll never break any law that was given to curb sin. When one walks in love, he actually walks in God, for God is love. When one walks in love, he is no longer negative or neutral. He is a positive element of blessing in the world. When you step out of the law of love, you step out of the environment of God and into the environment of the adversary. When one acts outside of love, he acts in harmony with the adversary. And he puts himself in a place where he has no defense. The adversary has the mastery. But as long as he walks in love, Satan has no dominion over him. When one acts out, acts outside of love, he weakens the faith element in him. You can't walk by faith without walking in love. We can't live the faith life without living the love life. Took me a long while to get this clear in my own spirit, but now I know it. Our faith will unconsciously be measured by our love walk. We can't talk outside of love nor act outside of love without weakening our faith. First Corinthians chapter 13 says, Love seeketh not its own. Faith in the Father and selfishness, folks, don't mix. When we walk by faith, we become independent of circumstances. 
when we walk in love, we walk in the realm of the Father's protection and we walk in his wisdom. The Father is love and he is life. He has made Jesus to be wisdom to us. And when we walk in fellowship with him, we have wisdom. We have his ability. Faith becomes as natural to us as water is natural to a fish. It's a part of our being. God is to us our strength, our life, and our ability. Now, the effects of righteousness in the presence of disease and sickness. You know, we wonder why Jesus was so utterly fearless in the presence of Satan and of his works. We saw him in the presence of death at Lazarus' tomb with a fearless confidence that really thrilled us, didn't it? Why was it? It was because he was righteous. Sin makes cowards of men. Sin consciousness holds us in bondage. We know we are of God and we know we have God in us. We know we are the righteousness of God. We can stand in the presence of Satan, of all of his works, as fearlessly as Jesus did. Righteousness is really the ability of God taking possession of us. We stand in his presence utterly fearless because of the consciousness that we are a new creation. We have been created by God himself, and Jesus has given us the power of attorney to use his name. He said, in my name, you shall cast out demons. And if we cast out demons, we can do undo anything that Satan has done. We can break the power of Satan anywhere that he is entrenched. We can cast down and destroy his stronghold. We can break in upon him with a fearlessness that's going to mean his destruction and our victory. Because we know that Satan has already been conquered. That we're now God's son where we have been slaves. We are strong where we have been weak. We are identified with God and we can fearlessly take his place and act as Jesus acted when he walked on the earth. Listen, it was no meaningless sentence that dropped from the lips of Jesus when he said in John 14 and 12, greater works than these shall you be because I go unto the Father. And whatsoever you shall ask or demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And that, we understand, is not prayer, not talking to the Father, but talking to the demons. We put up a fearless, solid front and face our adversaries as conquerors. Jesus said, come out of it. And we say, in the name of your master, come out of it. And you go off into the abyss where you belong, and don't you ever come back and harass and injure this man again. Folks, we're taking Jesus' place. We're acting in his stead. His righteousness that has been imparted to us gives us the ability to act in his stead and take his place. Folks, this is a new day in the divine life. This is a new order in the realm of men. Satan reigned over that old order and sin consciousness dominated us. But we have come to know that the new creation is the righteousness of God in Christ. And we know that this righteousness is not theological or philosophical, but an actual 
righteousness. It is God changing our sin consciousness to righteousness consciousness. It is God who has been at work within us, building his word into our spirit until we have become godlike in our thinking and masterful in our works. We are no longer timid. We're no longer fearful. We stand as sons of God should stand in the presence of a defeated enemy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, it speaks of the, the uh, dethroned powers in the world. We have recognized them as dethroned. We have recognized ourselves as enthroned. God is enthroned within us. We are the masters of the forces of darkness that have been destroying the human race. And we're going to take our place and play the part of Jesus. Now, the relation of righteousness to faith. You know, faith grows out of continual fellowship with the Father. Righteousness is the ability to stand in the Father's presence without the sense of guilt or inferiority. And it's the product of the finished work of Christ that culminates in the new creation. When we know that the Father recreated us with his own nature, taking out everything that was not lovely, putting his own life and nature in its place. And when we realize that he is so satisfied with this new creation, that he can make it his home, that he comes and dwells in us, we can realize how precious and how utterly priceless we are to him. If he had sons and daughters with whom he could not fellowship with on terms of equality, there's not going to be any satisfaction in it for him. The work he did in Christ will be another failure. But we're certain that man at the beginning had perfect fellowship with the Father. And when he fell, that fellowship was broken. A perfect redemption must restore that lost fellowship. And it has to be restored on legal grounds. Man must know that he has a perfect right in his father's presence. And he must lay the foundation to build a perfect love life. And out of this perfect love life will grow a faith life. Faith works by love. Faith and love are kindreds. Love gives birth to faith and faith strengthens love. When one knows that God has recreated him, made him a new creation, and that new creation is the nature of the Father imparted to him, then he knows that his normal place is in the Father's presence. Jesus said in John 15 and 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. That figure compels one to know that there is a perfect fellowship since the branch and the vine are one. The branch is as righteous as the vine, for the vine has imparted its life and righteousness to the branch. And this builds faith in the believer. We continually affirm that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. We say it over and over again until the reality of it becomes a part of our consciousness. We are as conscious of it as we are that four and four or eight or that a fire gives off heat or that the sun gives light. 
And we know that we are what God says we are. And we don't try to be what he has made us. We enjoy the wealth and riches of what we are in Christ. When he says he becomes the righteousness of him that has faith in Jesus, we know God has become our righteousness because we have faith in Jesus as a Savior and Lord. And we know we are righteous. We don't try to be righteous any more than a man has to try to be a man. He may try to be a good man, but he is what nature has made him. We are what God has made us to be, his own righteousness. And the Spirit says through Paul that God made Jesus to be wisdom unto us. And we know that Jesus is our wisdom. When he says Jesus was made unto us sanctification, we know we're sanctified by his sanctification. When he declares he was made unto us redemption, we know we're redeemed, that he is our redemption. And consequently, our redemption is a reality. And by the same token, he declares that he has become our righteousness. And if he has become our righteousness, then our standing with the Father is identical with his. And that's grounds for a real faith in the Son of God. Mark 12 and 22 says, have the faith of God or have faith in God. We got both. We have God's faith reproduced in us by his living word, by his nature that's imparted to us. We have faith in God because it's a normal, natural thing for a child to have faith in its parent. We have more faith in the ability of God to put us over to heal, give ability and strength to meet life's problems than we have in the adversary to stop the purpose of God in us. In other words, we have more faith in God's ability than we have in the ability of the enemy. And we have more faith in the Father's word than we have in the circumstances that surround us or the environment that would attempt to hold us in bondage. God is bigger to us than any other thing in the world. We know that greater is he that is in us than the environment or the influences that surround us. And we know that we are more than conquerors, that we have passed out of the realm of failure into the realm of success and victory, glory to God. Now, the effect of sin consciousness on faith. Faith can't grow in the atmosphere of condemnation. As long as we keep ourselves in the realm of sin consciousness, our faith's going to be weak and ineffectual. If we attend a church where sin is preached continually, it will develop a sin consciousness in you and destroy your faith's vigor. Faith like love demands continual confession. If we don't continually affirm our love for those about us, love will slowly harden and become ineffective. There must be the continual affirmation of love. The husband and wife who cease to affirm their love for each other slowly but surely lose the keen fellowship with each other. Same thing is true in faith. We constantly affirm our confidence, our faith, and it grows. Now here's a few, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some affirmations to make some 
uh, things to say. You can say this, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. God's ability is in me. I have the life of God abiding in me. Whatsoever I ask of the Father in Jesus' name, he gives it to me. God's strength and God's ability abide within me. I have his wisdom. I don't have to ask for wisdom because wisdom is mine. I don't have to pray for faith because his promises cannot be broken. Because Luke one thirty seven says, No word from God is void of power. I have a standing invitation to come, to come boldly into the throne room and sit in the presence of my Father. I am now a member of the divine household. God is my Father, and I am his child, and I am in the family. I am a partaker of his divine nature. I am constantly conscious of his indwelling presence. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I have his love life abiding in me. Well, you see where we're going here. Just take you some words of God, put them in an affirmation of your your faith, and watch what God will do. I'm out of time. God bless you. We'll see you next time. God willing. Can quench my thirsting soul. Purest water made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow. Oh, Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night, what will be my guiding light? The shining rays of red and white. Jesus, I trust in you. Oh, sacred heart, in you I find mercy seated for all time. I am yours and you are mine. Oh, Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus. Jesus